morning. Uh, hope you've had a good week. Hope things been going well. Uh, been pretty peaceful around here. I've seen some of you grabbed a vacation. I hope that's been good, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, we're going to jump into the Word today, and Molly made a joke. I hope I don't totally cause a distraction now by pointing it out, but I'm trying to use this little thing on the microphone here to keep it from popping. For those of you back in uh, in uh, Tennessee, you know I'm already eating my words. I always said I would never do the uh, Britney Spears boy band thing, but hey, I didn't think I'd ever do video either, so here I stand, learning how to suffer in all kinds of ways, you know? It's terrible. There's no suffering going on, but you know what I'm saying. All right, let's get into the word. Today we're in Colossians. Uh, we've been working through it. We're going to continue on in it. If you've got a Bible, grab it, open it up, turn it to Colossians, or scroll it to Colossians, whatever you do. Again, uh, while you're doing that, we want you to come to church. This is not church. This is us taking apart the Bible. I am a pastor. We uh, do have a church here in Tempe, Arizona, and we want you to come. And there's a wide open door for you to come and do that. Um, I've got a couple of links. You can contact us through social media, through email, different ways, um, mainly because we want to let you know where we are and know you're coming, again, trying to kind of work within the times that we're living in. But uh, you're welcome. We would love for you to be here and come and spend time with us. Basically, what we're doing now is unpacking the word, and then later we'll come together and we'll talk about it and kind of lay into it uh, tonight. So welcome to come. Just hit us up and let us know. Remember the theme that we've been dealing with as we're going through this, Colossians 3.3, 3, that says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We'll get to the verse, but just hold that theme because it kind of runs through the thread of knowing who you are, which has been our our topic. So I'm going to read Colossians 1, 21 to 23, and then I'm going to pray. So here we go. This is our section today. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me pray. Lord, I give all authority to you. Obviously, you have it. I don't have to give it to you. I just recognize it, I guess, is the better word. Your authority to speak, your authority from the word, your words. I'm not looking to be the authority. I'm not looking to put my words into your mouth. I want you to put your words into mine, not just for those who might be watching, but for myself as well. I love to hear what you have to say. Uh, I pray, Lord, you teach us, help us understand your word in ways that bring glory to you, change our lives, and help us to impact others. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you uh, do get a chance to come out and spend some time with us, or if you know anything about us here at Salt River Community Church, our heartbeat is discipleship. That's where our entire heart parks, is around making disciples. So instead of convincing a church that they need to be making disciples, what we're doing is we're focused on making disciples and teaching them to be the church Kind of a different backwards approach, or, or maybe you could argue it's the front approach, the biblical approach that's been drifted away from. But that's kind of where our goal is. And, and so I've had a lifetime, uh, well, not a lifetime, but 
a spiritual lifetime now uh, of learning to be a disciple and then making disciples myself. And so I had a group not too long ago. Well, it's been a few years back, I guess, but I had a group with me and there was a particular guy in the group. Awesome guy. I love him to this day, but he kept doubting his salvation. He kept struggling with it. He kept having this hard time with like, I'm, I'm not really saved, I'm not really saved. So we went through, we, cause it's a group. It's three to five here, but we were in a group of about four, I think at the time. And we were trying our best to kind of help encourage him to show him scriptures and texts and things like that. Help him understand. No, man, you are a believer. Like, you belong to him. You cannot lose what he did. You belong to him. Well, he just couldn't get it. So, at, and, and every time he'd settle in, later on he'd come back and he'd be crushed again. So, at some point, I finally, I looked at him and I told him, and I, now I was on staff in this church. I looked back and I told him, I said, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to walk out the door of the church, and I don't want you to ever come back to church again. And I wish you could have seen his face. Like, he looked so shocked. Like, he, he looked shocked and terrified, you know, but kind of both. And he said, you know, I can't do that. Like, I could never do that. I could never do that. And I said, huh, why do you think that is? And that's kind of where we're going today. Too often our bad deeds convince us that our good deeds are just not enough. Uh, somehow we forget that our deeds are actually powerless. Powerless. Either way, good or bad, they're powerless to save our situation. Only Christ's deeds are able to save us. That's it. Isaiah wrote in 64.6 that all our righteous deeds are filthy rags. Many of you probably know that, but we tend to overlook the word righteous in there. Our best deeds are filthy rags to God. That's rough, right? But when we surrender to Christ, realizing all of our deeds actually fall short, when we realize that and we surrender, we repent, and we put our faith in what he has accomplished on the cross, his life becomes our life. All our victories now glorify him. And our failures, they bring a conviction on us which actually verifies the fact that his presence is in our lives. So that's where we're going to go today. Paul has explained already, we've already talked about it, how about the reconciliation last week and even how we are ministers of reconciliation. Paul now would call himself a minister of reconciliation, just like they are. He said he was a minister. The word there actually is a servant or a deacon. It's the same as Epaphras, as he talked about earlier. And he reminds them that their salvation came entirely from the grace of God entirely from the grace of God, through the work of Christ. And so their deeds aren't earning it, but they're proving it to be true. Feel him? Hear me? Their deeds are not earning it. They are proving it to be true. And as we look at this, listen, I hope you're really going to understand grace a little more. I don't think you can understand it. I don't think any of us can understand it. We can accept it. But understanding grace it's so difficult when you really start to put your brain around what grace means. But today I hope we can wrestle through it a little bit where you feel that. And maybe that will make, a, make, make you move in a way or, or guide your life in a way that reflects the one who died to save you and extend that grace to you. And, and not to earn his love, but because of his love. Do you hear me? Not to earn his love, but because of his love. So we're going to be looking at who we are in Christ, what we've been talking about, who we are. That in this week, we're going to be looking at our deeds that are that eternally secure. Not our deeds, but the deeds that eternally secure. 
We're going to look at it across three verses, and it's actually in three different ways. It's really pretty cool. Our deeds past, the things that we've done, who we are, and what we've, what we've done in the past, pre-Jesus, verse 21. Then his deeds, which are eternal, in verse 22, past, present, future, they're eternal. His eternal work, Christ's eternal work, you could look at that. So it's kind of a who we are, Christ's eternal work. And then our deeds present, who we are now, in, as a result of Christ's eternal deeds. So... Let's go in here on verse one, uh, verse 21, I'm sorry, our deeds past who we were. And you, Paul says, who were once alienated, alienated there, it's a present condition that's passive. So it's a condition you live in, but you have no control over. Okay? Condition you live in, but you have no control over. You who were once alienated and hostile, that's a personal enemy, that's what it means. A personal enemy, hostile in mind or attitude, doing Evil deeds. Not just thinking about them, doing them. That's how he describes this. What's Paul saying? What's he saying? What kind of picture is he painting? Seriously. What kind of picture is he painting of our condition? What's Paul calling me? What's he calling you? What's Paul talking about here? Apart from Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul talking now. What do dead things do? Rot. Right? He's saying you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's obviously talking about Satan and the forces of wickedness that are manipulating and moving through mankind. And he says, among whom, listen, we all once lived. Paul's saying, I'm no better than I'm me, too. I lived in that, too. That was me, too. In the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Basically saying, if it felt good, I was doing it. That's the way we all were living, he's saying. And he says, and we were by nature children of wrath, he says, like the rest of mankind. All of mankind classified as children of wrath here. That doesn't mean that we love to fight. That means that we are under the wrath of God. Let that sink in a minute. Because of sin, under the wrath of God. I already asked last week if you ever considered that God might be hostile towards you. This week I would ask you, has it considered, have you considered you might be hostile to Him? In fact, apart from Christ, you are. Romans 8, 7, Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Uh, for it does not submit to God's law. Listen, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can do a lot of good things. You might make a lot of men proud. You might make a lot of women proud. You might win some awards and some trophies. And you might do some really, quote, good things. But you cannot please God. Can't. That's what he says. And listen to me. This is why repentance is so needed for salvation by faith. That's why it has to start there. Listen uh, to what Norman Geisler wrote. He said, people are not inwardly hostile versus God because of their outward acts of sin. They commit sins because they are inwardly hostile. See what he's saying there? N.T. Wright said this. It's not simply that habitual wrongdoing has turned the mind away from God. Thought and act are both tainted, each pushing the other into further corruption. 
Your mind's leading your deeds. Your deeds are leading your mind, leading your mind, and you're spiraling into more and more corruption. That's what Paul says. And Paul made this statement very personal by saying, "And you, you." He could be pointing at me. You were alienated. You were hostile. You were evil. Can you admit that? Is it making you a little uncomfortable? I'm pointing at the camera. Is it even that? Is it making you uncomfortable? Can you admit it? Do you believe that? That you were those things? Do you believe that? Or are? Apart from Christ, you are. So maybe that's still you. I don't know. If you can't, then you're failing to recognize the first step towards salvation by faith, and that's repentance. That's the first step. In response to God's grace, you repent. Um, if you've been a believer for a long time, does it hit your heart every time you hear that? The song, Amazing Grace, overplayed, overworked, whatever, but it shouldn't be. It should hit you again that it was while we were like that, While you were alienated, while you were hostile, a personal enemy of God, while you were evil, doing evil deeds, in that condition, he sought out reconciliation with us. That ought to throat punch you. That's our deeds. That's who we are. So let's move to his deeds, his eternal work here. Look what he does in verse 22. His deeds are eternal. Verse 22. He has now, at this present moment, has now, at this moment, reconciled you. E.D., at the present, you are reconciled. It happened in the past. It's active now. You are, have been reconciled by what he's done in his body uh, of flesh by his death. You know, I'm, many of you know I spent a lot of time doing prison ministry and stuff. And there's actually this pretty common tattoo. And I'm not just throwing prisoners under the bus here. I've seen it plenty of places. I mean, I got tattoos, so I'm not judging tattoos. But this one I see a lot that says, only God can judge me. Maybe you've seen that. And it's not just a tattoo, but it's more commonly in tattoos, I think. But only God can judge me. And I always find that striking because of all of the things in all of creation that you would authorize to judge you. Why would you want it to be the one who knows everything? You know what I'm saying? I understand what they think when they say that, but they're not considering something here. He knows everything. You're authorized. You're, if you say that, and you're right, by the way, he is the one that will judge you. But if you say that, you're, you're, you're authorizing the omnipotent, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God to be the one who judges you. That's some scary stuff, especially when you consider the condition that Paul just said we're all in. If what Paul said is true, that's a scary claim for you to say only God can judge me because you are hostile towards him, if that's what you're saying. But the thing is, for those whose faith is in Christ, praise God, he does not judge us. He judges his son. He does not judge us. He judges his son who became a man for that very purpose. For that very purpose, Paul contrasts here. The deeds of these Colossians with Christ's deeds. It's his work in redemption has replaced their work in rebellion. His work of redemption has replaced their work of rebellion. His deeds are the ones that eternally secure here. The deeds that eternally secure, they're his. They're the ones in the middle here. 
Ephesians 2, 1, we mentioned it a minute ago, you were dead. Remember verse 2, by nature, children of the wrath. He goes on in verse 4 to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what grace is. It's not because you made some perfect profession. It's because he made you alive when you were dead. And he raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's already been done according to Paul, yet you may not feel it yet because it hasn't been realized. Verse 12, same chapter. Remember that you were... At that time, separated from Christ. He goes on to say, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13. But now, that was then, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's already been done. It's already been done. He's telling the Ephesians the same thing he's telling the Colossians. It's already been done. You have been, you were there, now you're here. You've been brought there, not by anything you did, by the blood of Christ, he said in verse 13. Jesus is a good point in here too, by the way. Jesus was a literal person. He was born a man. He lived. He was not a ghost. He was not a spirit like these Gnostic spiritualists were trying to teach the Colossians. He, he's not any of those things. He is a man. And that's important because one of the rules of, law, of God's own word is eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What that means is the punishment fits the crime kind of thing. In other words, a sheep is never ultimately going to do it for a man. Man for man. Eye for eye. Man for man. It was Jesus physically in his body dying that made reconciliation between God and man happen. That's the way it went down. Now why? Look at verse 22. in uh, Colossians 1 verse 22 back in our text. Why? In order to present you three ways. Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amazing. Holy, by the way, there. It doesn't mean like equal to God. It just means set apart. Like God is set apart and, and set apart from all others. We are set apart it's kind of closely related to the word saint there. Blameless is a great word. Blameless, it's not just blameless before others. It's blameless before God. It's blameless before God who sees everything, right? Every thought, every deed, even those things that nobody knows but you, the things that you did that nobody knows but you, the things that you thought that nobody knows but you, uh, the things that maybe even you've said out loud that you thought nobody heard, all those things that all of them, in Christ, you're blameless. Blameless. Psalm 103.11 For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love. Grace is the word there towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? Infinitely far. They're gone, man. He removed them. Not, not anything we did. He removed them. Why? Because of his steadfast love or his grace. 
when he says they are blameless, it means without blemish. It's kind of a picture of the temple services where in the temple people would bring their sacrifice. So you'd have this father, if there was a family or an individual, they would bring their uh, lamb to the temple to be uh, put up as a sacrifice to cover their sins. Not to, not to uh, deal with their sin, but it covered it. And it was a picture of Christ coming. But in, in any event, they would bring their lamb as this offering, and it would have to be blemishless. No blemishes. It had to be a perfect lamb. And so when they brought him, they'd bring him to the temple, and there'd be a priest there, and the priest would inspect the lamb and make sure that the lamb was without blemish and an acceptable offering. In a sense, Jesus presented himself as the lamb without blemish. And he presented himself to, to God. I know he's God. We already talked about that. It's hard to wrap your brain around. But he presented himself in a sense to God the Father who saw him, his offering himself blemishless and acceptable. Okay, that, that's kind of what's being pointed out here. And now what Paul is saying is this is how God sees us. This is how God sees us. We're presented in Jesus as acceptable. Not because our blemishless offering, because I got tons of blemishes, I can promise you, but because of his blemishless offering, right? He says, above reproach is the third piece. That one's pretty clear. It just means free from accusation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justified uh, who Who is there to condemn Christ? Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God and interceding for us. What he's saying is, hey, God's done all the work, so who's going to condemn you? You're, they don't realize if they're condemning you, they're actually condemning God because God's the one who did it. There's no one to condemn you. Sometimes we say we don't really care what others think. Uh, we don't care what you think about me. I don't care what you think about him. Uh, you know, I don't care what you think. And that's uh, usually a pretty healthy position to be in. It's not always, but most of the times. But then there's some times where somebody might bring an accusation against us, and it's justified. You know what I mean? It, it, but what God knows of us, in order to bring an accusation, the things that God knows that he can accuse us for are infinitely more important issues. And listen, he is justified to accuse us. He is justified to accuse us. And that makes grace so much more amazing. That because of Jesus' death, we are free from all accusations. Because of Jesus' death, we're free of all accusations. That he looks at us with the love of a father, like he looked at Christ Jesus, his only son. He looks at us at the love of a father and without blemish. If you think I'm wrong, I'll give you another verse. Philippians 2.15, Paul writes to the Philippians, and he said that they would be, that they may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. It says it right there. Paul, back in Colossians in our text, he said that we that he is presenting us, that he would present us that way. Who's he presenting us to, Christ? Who's he presenting us to? Well, there's some debate about that. I believe it's pretty clear. He's presenting us to himself as a bride. 
the bride of Christ, the church. He's presenting us to himself. I'll give you one of, one of many places. I'll give you one place why I believe that. Ephesians 5, 25. And you can see I keep linking Ephesians, Philippians, uh, Colossians, obviously. It's because these are all letters that Paul wrote. So it's helpful to get into Paul's mind, to understand what Paul's saying by looking at other things Paul said to other people and noting similarities. So Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. So the context here is marriage. I'm not preaching on marriage right at the moment, but just understand the context is marriage. As Christ loved the church and gave him up, gave himself up for her. Past tense. Note it. Past tense. That he may sanctify her. Past tense. Not us. He may sanctify her. Past tense. Um, having cleansed her. Past tense. By the washing of the water with the word. So that he might present the church. That's past tense as well. All these verbs are are in the past tense in Greek. That he might present past tense as something he did in the past. The church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be. That's present. That she might presently be holy and without blemish. Dude. All the actions of redemption here are in the past. They're at the cross. All of them. All of them were done at the cross. And we presently, as the church, as a, as his children, as body of believers, we presently are holy and without blemish before God. Right now. Because of what he did before. But then Paul seems to twist it. So let's get into that real quick. And this is kind of the last uh, piece of the puzzle. We have our deeds past, kind of who we are. His deeds, which are eternal. And they, they, they work towards the past, the present, at the time, and the future. They're eternal deeds. And because of that, that brings us to our present deeds, the, the who we are now. All right? Verse 23. If, which is a big word that everybody hangs up on. We're going to come to it. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, not just in general faith here, in the faith, faith in Jesus, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So their evil deeds in verse 21 are replaced by his reconciling deeds in verse 22. And the result is evidenced by their faithful deeds now in 23. You follow me? If Paul made this statement right here in some kind of isolated context, then we may really struggle with this, especially the if there. But he says it in the context of who Christ is and what Christ has done. That's one reason why he went through chapter or uh, verses 15 to 20 explaining the awesome, unexplainable God, which we've already talked about all that and go back and listen to it. But, but Paul put this in that context and then what Christ has done in that context And what he's getting at is if God is the one who saved me, if God is the one who saved me, and if you're a believer, I would say you would affirm the same for yourself. God saved you. If God saved me by his own merit, his own deeds, his own action, then the assurance is on him, not me. You following that? The assurance is on him, not me. It's his name. It's his reputation. It's his word that's at stake. That's what we depend on his ability to accomplish our salvation. You hear that? His ability to accomplish my salvation. Now, I'll give you a great verse for this, and it's heavy, but hey, it's there. John chapter 6, Jesus himself says in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. 
talking about God the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, talking about people here, but raise it up on the last day. And if you wonder, what, what does it mean? I'm telling you, he's talking about people, and you'll see why. Verse 40, he explains, For this is the will of my Father. If you get nothing else, hear this verse. This is the will of my Father, Jesus says, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So if you can lose your salvation having looked at the cross and believed in Jesus, then you are able to stop Jesus dead in his tracks from fulfilling the will of his Father. That's what it says. So what's Paul getting at with the if then? Well, he's talking about evidence here. Evidence. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some quotes because you can hear what other people have said about it to kind of pull it in. John MacArthur said this. Those who have been reconciled will persevere in faith and obedience because in addition to being declared righteous, they are actually made new creatures. We, we get that from 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is passed away. You can't go back to it. It's gone. He says, we have a new disposition that loves God, hates sin, desires obedience, and is energized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, uh, G.W. Peterman said, Paul said, God reconciled past tense them. If they continue, which is present tense, in the faith. So Paul said God reconciled them in the past if they continue in the present faith. Since the present cannot change what's happened in the past, it is the past reconciliation that produces and is seen in present faith. Follow that? Another one, Warren Wiersbe said, We're not saved by continuing in the faith, but we continue in the faith and thus prove that we have been saved. Or another way to think about it that, 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 that I wrote down in my Bible for myself is because we tend to think that because I've been faithful, Jesus saved me. But the Bible says because Jesus saved me, I'm faithful. Uh, one more. Ironside, H.A. Ironside wrote a simple little statement. Endurance is the proof of reality. The fact that you endure proves the reality. First John 2.19 he is, uh, this is kind of a negative, but it's a good way to see the positive by seeing the negative. He says, they went out from us. He's talking about people who've left the body, the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. See, people can love the idea of being involved in the church. People can love the idea of... Christianity and the positive good things that come with it, loving your enemy and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to repentance, confession, when it comes to isolation from the world, when it comes to making a stand on some things that bring in persecution, when it comes into suffering, which is most definitely possible, and I'm talking about physical suffering, those who remain faithful can be certain that their confession was real. That, that's the picture here. The evidence is in our desire for him, for his kingdom. Our, our ev the evidence is in our brokenness over sin when we do fail. Because we're going to, nobody's going to be perfect, but when we do fail, we're broken over it. Uh, listen to me. Those who are lost don't grieve over sin. They might be frustrated that they hurt somebody. They might be sorry if they hurt somebody or somebody. But they're not sorry they hurt God. 
They're not grieving over what it's done to their relationship with God. They don't feel like they're running from him. They just messed up. You know, Paul, where Paul's going here, you know, we can struggle here, but we can't shift from the hope. He said there, shift from the hope of the gospel or God's grace, that God loves us. Look, I I may mess up, I may screw up, but I can't give up hope that God has forgiven me, will forgive me, is taking care of me, because that's all I got. And sometimes I might sin bad, sometimes I might sin for a long time, but I never shift from the hope that the gospel is going to save me. All right? And it always hurts me that I'm hurting my relationship with him. And look, there is nothing shocking about this, okay? There's nothing really shocking about this. If somebody confesses that they'll never leave their wife, they go down to that altar and they say, I will never leave you. I'll be yours always. If they say, I will never leave my wife, but then over time they grow apart, all right? They grow apart and then he leaves. That doesn't mean that in the beginning he meant that. But, you know, hey, things change, times change, you know, I change my mind. No, what it meant, what it means is he never meant it in the first place. He never meant it in the first place. Because never leave will never mean less than never. <laughs> never will never mean less than never. If you say never, that's what it means. So what he actually meant was that he wasn't planning to leave. But nothing's impossible. You know, nobody knows what could happen. That's what he should have said because that's what he meant. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. When Jesus says never, it means never. So the question then is, do you believe that? Do you believe him? Do you have faith that he's actually able to do that, what he said, to keep his word? 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8 says, it is Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. It is him who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, verse 9, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. God is the one who does it. Our deeds don't earn us praise then. Our deeds as Christians earn him praise. And our deeds now come from our identity in him. It's all changed. Philippians 2.12, many of you know it. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. A lot of people put a period there and say, yep, you got to work hard at being, being a good Christian. That's not what it says. Verse 13 says, for or because it is actually God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is him that is doing it. Philippians 3 verse 12. Now that not that I've already obtained this or that I'm already perfect. Paul says I'm not already perfect. I'm not, which means Paul sinned. I'm not already perfect, but I press on. That's at the present right now. Paul says presently I press on to make that my own because Christ Jesus has made past tense me his own. See what Paul's saying there? I press on towards perfection. I press on towards these things because Jesus has already made me his own. But I'm not perfect, which means I still sin. Paul says I still sin, but I press on towards perfection. I press on away from sin, even though I still sin, because Jesus has already made me his own. Think about it in terms of adoption. Paul talked about adoption all the time. 
We get brought into God's family at epic cost, the death of his own son. We get brought into his family. It doesn't mean that we won't fail. It doesn't mean that we won't offend. It doesn't mean that we won't rebel, just like any child would brought into a home. It doesn't matter how good things are. Those things still can happen. But it does mean that we move from enemy to child. It does mean that we move from wrath to grace. It does mean that we move from justice to discipline. And by the way, God spanks. I'm just here to tell you. I can promise you. How should a child of God act? Listen to me. Hear me out. How should a child of God act? Think about it. In fact, here's a good practice for you. Sit down and write a paragraph to answer that question. How should a child of God act? Write a paragraph to somebody who's who's a perfect stranger that you have no idea if they know who God is or not. A perfect stranger. How would you answer that question? Write it down. Would it describe you? Would it describe you? If not, does that mean you're not a child or that you're not acting like it? Either one means you need to respond. Either one needs you, you need to respond. But finally, we'll close up here, verse 23. The gospel you heard, he said, which has been proclaimed, past tense, in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister or servant is, is the word again. Paul's reminding them basically here their faith's not on an island. They're not alone in believing the gospel. I remember the first time that uh, I went to Ukraine uh, to support church planning there. And I heard, we walked in, we heard hymns. We heard these Ukrainian people in Russian singing hymns. Now, I didn't know what they were saying because I didn't know Russian. But I knew the tune and I recognized the songs. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And they're all smiling and just excited. It was such an encouragement. And it made me realize that, you know what? I should have known it, obviously, but God's already there. God is already there. The gospel is so much bigger than me. It's so much bigger than my church. It's so much bigger than my city. It's so much bigger than the country that I live in. He is everywhere, and so is his gospel. All creation under heaven, he notes there, basically because... Create God when in uh, when God created man in Genesis one twenty six He put all of creation under mankind, and when mankind fell, so did all of creation. And when He says, when He says that, He says everyone or everything under under heaven. But has has everyone heard? No. So why does He say that? Well. I love the way N.T. Wright puts it, and I go with this. He says, from whales to waterfalls, the whole created order has, in principle, been reconciled to God already at the cross. Like a sovereign or a king making a proclamation and then sending off his heralds to bear it to the distant corners of his empire, God has, in Christ Jesus, proclaimed once and for all that the world which he made has been reconciled to him. His heralds now scurrying off to the ends of the earth with the news are simply agents, messengers of this proclamation. Amen. That's who we are. Paul says there too he became a minister. Notice Paul wasn't born to do this. Paul was reborn to do this. Key statement. Paul had to die to self to become a minister of Christ. Um, and when he calls himself that diakonos word I already mentioned before, that alongside Epaphras, the same word, he's calling himself a servant of the gospel. He's not above these Colossians. He's alongside them 
as servant of the same gospel. So let me close with Jesus' half-brother. Uh, he put some words down on paper that are epic, incredible words. All right? And I'm going to close with these. It's from Jude, uh, verse 24. There's only one chapter. So verse 24, Jude wrote, half-brother of Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. If you could sum everything I just talked about up in a statement, that's it. Can you hear the gospel today? Do you hear it? Because it's being preached. Not just from me. It's being preached. Grace is available to you. Forgiveness is... Well, you don't know what I did. It doesn't matter. He does. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you do right now. Except that you turn your life to him. It doesn't make any difference. You can do it right now wherever you are to turn it over to him. Put your faith in him. Make his deed on that cross your own. Lay yours down. Stop trying, man. Stop trying. Admit that you cannot do it. You cannot do it. Just admit it. And accept that he has made a way possible. That he, through his son, will look at you blameless. Confess that you are that person. I'm sorry, Father. I'm sorry, Lord Jesus. I've been your enemy. I accept what you did for me on that cross. Accept that. Turn your life to him. Put it in his hands. That's all you got to say. It doesn't have to be any fancy prayer. Just tell him whatever's on your mind, however you feel it in your gut, tell him. And then shout at us. Let us know. We want to hear from you. We want to pray for you. We want to celebrate it with you. I don't care if you're in the East Valley of Phoenix, Arizona or not. We want you to. But if you're already in the family, listen to me. Check yourself. That's all I got to say, man. Check yourself. Check yourself. Make that list I talked about before of what a child of God looks like. Make that list. And if you're not living it, look, first of all, repent. Sorry, Lord, that's not me. I'm not living like that. Repent. And then look, I'm not going to tell you do better. It's not about doing better. It's about learning to love him more because he will do better through you. Follow me? Let me pray for you guys. Lord, I love you. I thank you for the privilege of being in your word. I thank you for the responsibility that you give us to open your word and to glorify you with it and not ourselves. Excuse me, not ourselves. And Father, I pray that uh, we're always working hard to know what you have to say to us. Jesus, thank you for grace. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for redeeming me while I was alienated, hostile, and evil. Lord, I pray that I am a child of God that reflects your son in each and every step I take. And I know I don't. But I pray you help me learn to love you more and more and more and focus on you more and more as you transform my life. To look more like him and less like me. And I pray that for each person who would confess that alongside with me. Lord, help us represent you well. We love you, Lord. We pray that you're glorified in our lives. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.